Welcome to Breaking the Cycle of Poverty featuring Jay Height, Executive Director of Shepherd Community Center in Indianapolis. My name is Tim Swearens, and I'm your host for these conversations that explore why poverty remains such a persistent problem in the United States. On this episode, Shepherd Assistant Director Tim Street joins us for the second half of our discussion about key lessons he's learned after more than 25 years serving in urban ministry. Tim, uh, thank you for joining us again for this episode. Um, We've spent the past few months on this podcast discussing Shepherd's 10 Essential Assets for Breaking Free of Poverty. You played a central role in crafting the list of assets. Um, why is it important for a ministry such as Shepherd to have a defined list of, of assets when it comes to reducing poverty? And what can you tell us about the foundational work that went into writing that list? Well, let me answer those questions kind of in reverse, starting with the foundational work. Um, I had been in, in full-time Christian urban ministry uh, for probably about 10 years um, before I had my own children. Uh, we, I had lived, we had lived in a, the Austin neighborhood of Chicago and then for several years in the Martindale Brightwood neighborhood of Indianapolis uh, when we started having our own kids. I had uh, participated in starting a ministry. I had served on the staff of a large suburban church as their minister of urban outreach and, um, you know, and, and things were happening. Um, but when I, when I had my own kids, I began to see things a little bit differently. Uh, <laughs> that'll, that'll happen, won't it? Uh, I began to see things a little bit differently. And, and particularly, in, you know, we, were, we had a lot of the kids in our neighborhood in our home all mm-hmm. the time. One, one young man uh, named Quincy was in our house uh, all the time. And, uh, and, but I began, when I had my own kids, I kind of began to sort of compare them. Um, and even though my kids were little, not necessarily comparing their behavior as, as little children, but I, I started noticing uh, the kids in our neighborhood, the kids that were getting involved in, in this ministry called Gyro Sports that I was a part of at the time. And, and um, I started seeing them, uh, uh, let, let's describe it as miss opportunities in their lives, um, pass up on things that uh, that, that I thought you know they should be involved with or, or should be connected with, and 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 I started asking myself, you know, why why do these kids why are they behaving the way they are? Why are they missing these opportunities? Why are they not taking advantage of opportunities? When I am doing everything that I can do right now to teach my children mm-hmm. to take advantage of those opportunities, and uh, and as particularly as my kids got older, I saw my kids you know doing things like advocating for themselves, where my neighbor's kids didn't seem to do that, uh, because I taught them to advocate for themselves. And, and, and that really began, uh, you know, just this thought experiment about what are the things that my kids are gaining through the way that I'm raising them, which mm-hmm. is, you know, even my kids are sort of th- what we would call third culture kids, but within our home, they were being raised with a very middle class mindset, uh, you know, and, and in comparison to how my neighbor's kids were were being raised. And, and I just started asking myself, what do my kids possess that my neighbors lack? And I just started kind of writing them down. Uh, and then I started doing some reading, and I realized, you know, this list that I was beginning to create, I wasn't the first to, uh, to create a list like this. There's a researcher by the name of Ruby Payne, and she has, at the time, she had a list of what she called her eight resources, and there's another organization that has the 40 developmental assets. And, and so I began to realize I'm not the only one thinking this way, but I, I just started sort of, you know, kind of perfecting, not perfecting, but, you know, get, maturing the list a little bit, fleshing yes. it out more and more. And, and, and then in the training that we were doing for the volunteers at, at Gyrosports, 
we would talk about these things and uh, and we would talk about these these assets and uh, and and ultimately it just you know it just kind of grew from there and uh, and 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 ultimately when Gyra Sports merged into Shepherd. You know, we started talking about it more, and then a few years ago, Shepard really began to sort of adopt this model. And sort of the second question, of course, was why is it important for a ministry such as Shepard to have, you know, a defined list of assets when it comes to reducing poverty? And I think there's a couple answers to that question. First, you know, I mentioned the last time uh, we were together that, uh, you know, the diagnosis shapes the prescription. You know, the way we diagnose a problem determines how we respond to it. And, um, and if we see poverty as a simple problem, you know, then then we're just going to try to come up with simple solutions. If we see it as a lack of money, we're going to simply give money out. Uh, but we know that that's just not effective. Uh, and the reality is we want to be effective. I mean, none of us want to spend 30 or 40 years of our lives uh, doing something and then look back and go, you know, what did we accomplish? You know, right. what, was that, what, was, what was that 30 or 40 years worth? And so I think it's important for us to just really – for for us as individuals and as in any ministry, I think, to just have some guiding principles that keep us on track that we believe lead to effective ministry. Okay, yeah. and in our case here with what we're doing, you know, it's the ten assets. In in other contexts, it would be something different. Uh, and so, you know, we want to be effective, but I think it's also important uh, for organizations to stay on mission. Okay. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, this list, I think, helps us, you know, stay on mission. If we ask ourselves, you know, is, is this program that we're doing here, is it building up the assets? Is it, is it empowering those who are participating mm -hmm. in the program to have a greater access of this asset? Or, or you know, and if, if we're doing things that aren't doing that, we probably shouldn't be doing them. So I think it kind of helps us stay on mission. You know, I've I've had the pleasure over the years of uh, uh, you know being involved in an organization called CCDA and traveling around the country and seeing lots of ministries. I've seen a lot of ministries that were sort of held up as best practices examples, and seen a lot of ministries that do a lot of things. You know, really broad, really really broad. Do just really try to do everything. And and I always say, you know, I think there's one. They have one thing in common is they do them all poorly. Uh, when you try to do everything, you just don't do anything well, okay? And, uh, and I think that's really important. Um, I've seen and, – and there's sort of an occupational hazard among people who do compassionate ministry, those who, who, who you know, sort of take care of the widows and the orphans. And the, I think the occupational hazard is that we want to do everything, you know? We just want to try to meet every need, mm -hmm. and we just we really just can't really do that. I mean, uh, and I've also seen a lot of uh, ministries start programs for lots of different reasons. I've seen ministries start programs because they did a needs assessment of the neighborhood and thought, okay, this is a need, so we should try to meet this need. I've seen them start programs because there was a big grant available, you know, right. and uh, and and those things rarely last. Uh, and and as a matter of fact, uh, most of those are are long gone. Um, but but staying on mission and saying, you know, is this program is it is it is it building up the assets in in our neighbors? Um, and uh, and is the next program is it going to build up the assets uh, in our neighbors? Because this isn't this isn't about what we're doing. 
This is about whether our neighbors are becoming better equipped to break the cycle of poverty. And so I think it's important because it kind of it keeps us uh, it, it keeps us on task. It keeps us on mission. It, it, it helps us avoid you know mission creep, which is a military term, but it can it can happen in lots of different places. I think one of the things that this tool has has helped us is uh, John McKnight is a professor at Northwestern and talks a lot about community asset based development. Mm. We're talking about human asset based development. Mm. <clears throat> there are a lot of great groups doing community asset based development. That's not our focus. We see the resource to be the person. And, and, and that's the greatest asset is a life. And we want to invest in that. And so uh, with these 10 assets, and, and I appreciate because Tim is helping us figure out how to measure that, how to say, how are we building this asset that with that gives us the ability to measure our progress or to measure what we're not doing well and to be very clear that at the end of the day, we want to see lives changed, not more programs grown. Uh, it's not whether Shepherd gets bigger. It's whether more lives have assets and we're going to be able to, and through his doctoral work, be able to build the, the measurement tools to say, yes, this is working or it's not. Jay, I've seen I've seen leaders in nonprofits and, and and ministries take a competitive approach rather than a partnership approach to, to leadership. Tim led a separate local ministry for several years that worked to address many of the same issues that, that Shepherd uh, addresses at its at its uh, at its core. Yet you saw Tim as a partner, uh, not a competitor. Walk us through that approach to leadership. Well, he's still a partner, and besides that, a friend, a brother, and so. I think part of understanding, we talk about poverty is not having relationships. Thankfully, Tim and I have a relationship and we've known each other for years. Um, I'm not always right. I know that probably shocks my wife. Uh, uh, Tim helps me sometimes see other perspectives. Uh, his training and his academic work is, is crucial to each and everything that we do here. <clears throat> And, uh, you know, one of my favorite leadership books is Team of Rivals yes. uh, about uh, Doris Goodwin's book on Lincoln's cabinet. I think we need to have folks who have a variety of experiences. And uh, if Shepard hired me to be the executive director because I've had all the answers, well, a lot of those are probably wrong. And so I think collectively we are better. And uh, Tim helps me. Uh, it is, um, I'm, I'm sort of excited because we're getting more time together. Uh, during much of his PhD work, he was gone and, and I missed that time because uh, I probe his vast mind and, and his insights to help in what I do each and every day. I think the idea of a good leader is to see the future and uh, in the conversations that we have, it helps me understand better the decisions that we need to be making today so that we're ready and helping build the right assets for five years from now. Yes. Tim, as we mentioned, you've been doing this work for a while. It's not an easy calling. Um, what keeps you going? What keeps you from being discouraged? 
Well, at the, at the risk of getting a little preachy, um, that's okay. You I've, can be been, uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the life of Joseph lately. Mm-hmm. You know, Joseph, of course, the story of Joseph basically occupies the last uh, 14 chapters of, of Genesis. Obviously, probably it's, it is the single longest telling of a story in the Bible. Uh, so obviously a seminal character, uh, of course one of the one of the fa- fa- fathers of the tribes of Israel, you know Jacob's son, and uh, and and you know everybody knows the story, or hopefully most people know the story. You know he's uh, he's sold into slavery by his eleven brothers, or at least ten of them, and and ends up in uh, in in slavery in Egypt and, and eventually in prison, but finds favor everywhere he goes through faithfulness and and his gifts and uh, and eventually you know becomes uh, Pharaoh's number two man and yes. saves uh, saves uh, Egypt and and uh, and saves you know his brothers as well. And uh, and you you know there's a million sermons preached about Joseph. There's a million Sunday school lessons. And it all has to do, they almost always have to do with, um, you know, with uh, uh, perseverance and faithfulness and honesty and the lessons that we can learn for our own lives from the life of Joseph, who's this great example. And, and, and I'm not dismissing any of that. Um, and I think that's very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the most important question that Nat needs to be asked about the life of Joseph and really all of our lives is how did God use Joseph to advance his kingdom, his redemption story Mm -hmm. in history? And if you then read, you know, Genesis ends with the death of the death of Joseph. Well, then Exodus starts with, and along came a Pharaoh to whom Joseph meant nothing. Okay. And he then enslaves the Israelites because he's, you know, fearful of how they're growing and the power that they're gaining. And so the answer to the question is how did God use Joseph? And I think this is what we miss so much about the story is God used Joseph's life to move the Israelite nation to Egypt so that they could become enslaved so that later he could lead them out of bondage, you know, through the Exodus story, through yes. Moses, okay, and, and advance his redemptive work throughout history, that he had promised that he would bless the world through, this chosen, through the chosen people, the Messiah would come through, but that the, these chosen people would have to go through this story, okay? Yes. And so Joseph, for all the great things we can learn about him, was basically just the pawn that God used to move the Israelites into slavery, yes. and we don't want to think about it that way. Right. But I think that's the question we have to ask ourselves is, is God able to use me to advance his kingdom? How is he using me? Uh, And I think it's an important question because so many times we can think of our relationship with God as transactional. What is God going to do for me? What am I going to be able to do for God? Rather than how is God going to be able to use me? Okay. And I'll be, you know, and and I'll confess, you know, where I am now, I would have not imagined I would be here 30 years ago. I saw myself as, you know, as as a leader in the next generation of sort of CCDA ministries, the next Wayne Gordon or, or, you know, Bob Lupton or something like that. And I learned early on that wasn't me. My gifts didn't lie there. Mm Um, I was going to be the man behind the man. I was going to be the trainer. And, and, but every once in a while uh, now, I get the opportunity to see 
through somebody coming up and telling me a story of how they're in ministry today because 10 years ago they took a Poverty 101 class, you know, yes. and they've relocated their lives and changed everything. And, and, and there's this ministry that exists because of what they're doing. And I played a small part in that. And so I get to see how God is using me um, in a small way you know, to advance his redemptive story through these others that I have the opportunity, you know, to train a little bit. And, you know, every time I, you know, get discouraged, it feels like God provides me with one of those stories. And, yes. and, and that really that really keeps me going. Yeah, so. that's cool. So what advice would you offer a young person or perhaps a second career person who's entering urban ministry? What, how can they sustain that effort? Well, well, first thing I tell young people all the time, and I get this question a lot, first thing I tell people all the time is make sure you're part of a community. You know, don't do anything on, don't try to do anything on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, we made a lot of mistakes early in our ministry uh, 25, 30 years ago. Um, one of that was we didn't have the right community. We thought we did, but we didn't. And, uh, and, and that caused us a lot of years of, of, of feeling lonely and, uh, you know, wandering in, in the wilderness, so to speak, spiritually at least. And so I tell people all the time, I mean, don't just, you know, don't just say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move into this inner city neighborhood and, and uh, I'm going to start something. I mean, just be a part of, of what God's maybe already doing, mm-hmm. you know, find, find out what God's doing and join that. Or, or, or start with the work of developing a community of like-minded people. And then you can ask together, well, how does God want to use us? Okay, uh, because it's so important. I mean, loneliness is is a huge problem in our society today, but I think it's a spiritual problem as well. And I think uh, I think we need to be encouraged by one another. So we really need to be in community. And then I tell kids all the time, and I have an opportunity to speak to a lot of college age kids. And I say, you know, kind of what Jay alluded to earlier in our conversation about being a lifelong learner: read, study, you know, learn everything you can. And um, I tell young Christians all the time, you better be the best read. You better be the most well-read person in the room. You know, I think God calls you to be that. You know, yes. God calls you to to learn all the time. I mean, He gave us this tremendous capacity to continue to learn. And uh, and if we don't use it, I don't think we're honoring you know the way God created us. And uh, uh, then I would say, be willing to be inconvenienced and be willing to be redirected. You know, uh, to say I'm going to I'm going to move forward, God, because I believe You're calling me to move forward. Um, but don't don't be so set on a particular path that you're unwilling to let God move you off that path a little bit. Um, because I, I look at my own life and I look at a lo- the lives of a lot of people that I know and admire in ministry, and and they're not where they thought they would be, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And uh, and it's very very important for us to be willing and to be okay with that, uh, and to see how God's using us. Yes. I, I, I would just echo this. Uh, if you want a job, this isn't the place. Right. If you're answering a calling, come join the team. Yes. Um, but urban ministry is a calling. It's not a job. And um, that's where relationships like Tim and mine uh, are beneficial. Jay, any encouragement for ministry workers? It's it's just a tough time in the ministry, and any encouragement you can offer. Well, it's I th- I'm going to echo what Tim said. Uh, Jesus sent everyone out in twos. He never created ministry to be done alone, and um, that's the benefit that we have at a place called Shepherd Community. Far from perfect, because I'm here. Uh, 
but that we're able to live life together and encourage each other and to love each other and you know caring and compassion starts with each other Tim, thank you for joining us for these past two episodes. Any any final thoughts before we wrap up? Well, just really on that last question, I mean, I, I, I do get asked that a lot. How can we make a difference? It just seems oh, so overwhelming. Um, and uh, it seems odd, but I point to my favorite scripture, which is Genesis 22. Abraham finds out that God um, is sending his angels and he's going to destroy uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, yes. or, or actually Sodom. And... Um, and, and, and Abraham begins to argue with God, you know, even calls him out and says, you know, you're about to do the wrong thing here. And, and he says, you, you destroy all these people for, you know, you'll be destroying the innocent with the guilty. And, uh, and so God and Abraham says, so if I can find, you know, 50 righteous men, will you save the city of Sodom? And he says, yes, I'll save the city of Sodom. And in and, and, and the boldest act of any human you'll probably ever see, Abraham begins to negotiate with God, negotiates him all the way down to 10, okay? Well, God destroys Sodom. What that tells us is that Sodom was destroyed for a lack of 10 righteous people, okay? 10 righteous people could have saved the lives of all those people. If you take that scripture and then you combine it with uh, verses like, if my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves, seek my face, pray, uh, I will hear from heaven, and I will heal their land. Okay. It says, if my people, those who call me Lord, will repent, seek my face, humble themselves, and pray, I will heal their land. I think there's a tapestry there among all those scriptures and others that says that the health of a place, the health of a community, the health of a city, the health of a state, even the health of a nation, Mm-hmm. is not dependent upon our ability to drive away sin, because that's never going to happen. The health of a community depends on the presence of believers who are out loving their neighbors. And so, yeah, it's difficult to make a difference. But Christians living in community together, loving their neighbors is the only thing that ever has. Yes. You know, And so I think, and I have seen neighborhoods turned around by a small group of faithful believers who believe, who prayed for that neighborhood and saw God do an amazing work. Thank you, Jay and, and Tim. Uh, for 37 years, Shepherd Community has made a, a lasting difference in the lives of thousands of neighbors, and the Shepherd team couldn't do that work without the support of donors, partners, and volunteers. To learn more about how you can help, please visit shepherdcommunity.org. Thank you for listening. Thanks.